Christians have historically affirmed that the Bible is different than any other book. It's, it's simultaneously the words of God and the words of man. Christians affirm this truth because Scripture gives this testimony itself. 2 Timothy 3.16, wonderful verse, says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, meaning these words come from God himself. So that means every book of the Bible, every passage, every verse, every, every uh, word has significance and, and is valuable because, because it comes from the mind of God. Even something like a genealogy is significant because it shows God's promises through the ages and how they connect from the descendants of Abraham and David and so forth, and a Messiah would come along in due time. So because of Scripture's divine source, its subject matter about God and redemption and so forth, Scripture really just kind of stands as a, as a towering majestic mountain range over all other writings that have ever existed. Though they might be beneficial, there's only the mountain range of Scripture. Now, within that mountain range, though, we can say that there are majestic peaks where we reach, I would call, an apex of significance. And today is one such passage as Jesus explains the two greatest commandments. The two greatest commandments. Now, just knowing what they are would be interesting in of itself, right? I mean, just to know what Jesus is saying here. But more importantly, these commandments are a summary of the entire Bible itself. The entire Bible itself. They shed light on what lies at the very heart of God's will for you and I. Now, granted... That means that we should still read the rest of Scripture, okay? This isn't the Cliff's Notes version <laughs> of the Bible, right? We should fill in all the rest. But we all benefit, don't we, when we have things boiled down to a clear, simple summary. And my prayer is that this passage today might ignite in us a passion to focus on what matters most and clear away the cobwebs of other things that might be distracting us, even good things in the Christian life, to be reminded, what does God want from me? Amen? So my prayer is that, and I ask you now to please turn to Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22. As you do so, just a quick little bit of background about this passage. This passage is found during the last week of Jesus' life. He's in Jerusalem, and he is facing stiff opposition from the religious leaders. They realize that they can't, you know, kill him publicly because he's so popular with the crowds. And so what they try to do is send a series of questions to him to try to stump him, to either put him in a place where he can't answer the question because it's too hard, or to know that it's a divisive topic and he'll lose favor with different groups of the crowd if he answers in any particular way. And so there have been different questions so far, and so far Jesus has shown his utter brilliance and his authority in putting those questions to bed, and the crowds have marveled at what he taught. But there's one more question that they want to throw his way. 
So let's start in verses 34 to 36 as we read the question that they posed to Jesus. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So the Pharisees were one of these religious groups that opposed Jesus, and they sent one of their own. It calls him a lawyer. They're also called scribes in other parts of Scripture, kind of synonymous terms. They were the official teachers of the people. And not only did they teach, but they were legal experts when it came to Jewish law and custom, and they were kind of in charge of enforcing those things. They were scattered all throughout the land of Palestine, and there in Jerusalem, they were one of the primary religious leaders. And so these lawyers, these scribes, they could come from all the different religious groups there in Jerusalem, or in Palestine and Jerusalem, but they typically were one of the Pharisees. Now in terms of these lawyers, these scribes, and their relationship to Jesus, I think you could say you could characterize it as one of hostility, right? As you look in the Gospels, they come to him seeking to break him down. They accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of casting demons out, right, by the power of Satan, which really doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? But they were doing whatever they could. They were mad at him because Jesus refused to abide by their legalistic, extra-biblical traditions that they were imposing on people, like that he couldn't heal people on the Sabbath, though they themselves would go out and care for their livestock. They were mad at Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath. Jesus himself predicts that they would have a part in his impending death. So it should come as no surprise that we find this lawyer seeking to test Jesus, right? He was wanting to discredit him. Everybody following so far? So again, he asked, teacher, what, which is the great commandment in the law? Referring to the whole Old Testament. What's the great commandment? Now, you might think, well, how is that a test for Jesus? Well, it was actually a pretty hot debated topic there. Because you see, in the Old Testament, you have about, they approximate 613 different commandments. And so the Jews recognized that these commandments were valid and binding, but inevitably when you have that many commandments, the question of priority is going to rise to the surface, right? And so they distinguished between what they called heavy commandments and light commandments. The heavy were the more significant ones. And Jesus himself seems to agree with this. Matthew 23, Jesus rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees because they focused on minute matters of the law like tithing garden herbs while neglecting the more important things, what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law. So for many Jews, these commands were all valid, but they were not of all equal importance. So with this in mind, there was a desire among the Jews to condense all of these commands to a, you know, a, a summarizing principle or principles down to one or two of these type of things. There was a famous request made to a, a, a couple of rabbis. The, the request was, it said there, teach me, quote, teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one leg. 
So obviously that's going to be pretty brief, right? They wanted to boil it down. So knowing this was an area of disagreement, the lawyer wanted to pit Jesus against the different opinions around him, right? So what's Jesus going to say in response? He replies with the first great commandment, which is love God supremely. Love God supremely. Let's see what he says. Verses 37 to 38. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So Jesus answers his question, you should know, by actually quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5, a very famous text of the Old Testament. This verse was famous also because it was part of what was known as the Shema, the most popular Jewish confession of faith that was recited by devout Jews twice a day. You say, why was it called the Shema? Well, in the previous verse in Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Hebrew word for um, hear is Shema, all right? So that's where they get it from. And so that verse would have been very familiar to the crowd as Jesus said these things. This is the great and the first commandment, to love God supremely. I want to go a little bit deeper with this, okay? I want to ask a couple of questions. What does this commandment mean? Why is it the most important? And then how can we obey it to the fullest? So what does this commandment mean? What does Jesus mean when he quotes this? He's saying that we're to love God with our heart, soul, and mind. He's not dividing the human person up into three different parts. He's basically piling these things up together and saying that we are to love God with the entirety of our being, our thoughts, our actions, our feelings. Make sure you get this. Everything you and I do should be done out of a love for God. Amen? You can be reading your Bible out of a love for God. You can be doing yard work out of a love for God. You can be making a meal. You can be volunteering for VBS. Hint, hint. Out of a love for God. It's on the inside and the outside. It's not that I, well, I'm, I don't really love God, but outwardly I kind of look like I do. No, God looks on the inside too, doesn't he? And he also wants that inside love to be displayed outwardly. So everything we're thinking about, everything we're feeling, all that we're doing should be out of a love for God. Why is it the most important commandment? That's my next question. Well, we humans, by nature, we tend to love something greatly, something we value, we treasure, we invest our time and energy into. Now, for many people, that something is going to be family, a career, possessions, power, pleasure, whatever it might be. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, right? Did you hear me correctly? Nothing wrong with those things, except when those good things become ultimate. Does that make sense? The Bible calls that idolatry. When we make idols, God substitutes. That is what 
the Bible calls idols. You say, well, what is an idol? Pastor Tim Keller, he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. In it, he says this, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. To get it from another angle, he says, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life, listen to this, that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. That's a good litmus test right there, friends. So by nature, we struggle with idolatry. But God has made us to love Him supremely. You say, why, is God, why does He command that? Is God prideful for wanting us to love Him supremely? No, it's actually quite the opposite. God created us to know Him and to have fellowship Him, and God knows that those idols, good though they may be, none of them can bring us meaning, purpose, and peace. Only God can. Idols are just simply incapable of that. It'd be like someone saying, you know, one of these chairs that you're sitting in, that that chair could fly them to Florida today. The chair just simply can't do that, right? It's not what it was made for. So idols cannot do what only God does. And so God is not prideful when he wants us to love him supremely, but he actually is loving because he wants what is best for us. Moreover, if we focus on loving God, it's amazing how the temptation of sin is lessened, right? When we're just seeking to love God, we're less inclined to sin. Not because we're so uh, driven by, oh, I want to avoid all these rules in my life. But no, we just don't want to grieve this wonderful God that we love so much. And so the pull of sin kind of diminishes. Let me ask you one final question. Maybe you're thinking this yourself. How can we obey this command to the fullest? How can we love God supremely? Well, the answer, friend, is no great mystery. I would say it is this. To read and obey Scripture. Read and obey Scripture. If I asked you to love another person that you knew existed, but maybe you did not know well, what should you do to grow in your love for that person? Just to sit there and say, I love that person. I love that person. I love that person. Just try to muster up as much love as you can. Would that really have any effect in your life? No, would it? What if you went and got to know that person, right? Then it makes all the difference in the world. And it's the same thing when it comes to God. He wants us to get to know him. And how do we get to know him? We get to know him primarily through his word. We need to know scripture and what scripture tells us about who God is, his character, his promises, his plans, his commands, and so forth. That's how we get to know God. And because he is our Lord, we also need to obey him. I want you to hear this. 
Love is revealed by our obedience. Do you know that? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love is revealed by our obedience, but also this. This is even more important, perhaps. Love is increased by our obedience. You say, how would that be the case? Well, as you obey God, he will reveal more of himself to you. As you obey God, he will reveal more of himself to you. Jesus says these fascinating words in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. That's what he just said in 14, 15. But he adds this, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Did you catch that? What he's saying there is we need to learn about God. We need to obey God. And as we learn about God and obey God, he reveals himself to us, his love for us, his blessings to us, so that then we in turn will want to know God more, read his word more, want to obey him more. He in turn will want to reveal more of himself to us. And so there's this beautiful pattern going on here of knowledge, obedience, revelation. You guys see that? But you can't take out the obedience part, can you? So we need to know God through his word. We need to obey God through his word. And as we do that, God meets with us and shows us his presence so that our hearts grow in love for him. Pretty cool. So the first great commandment is to love God supremely. Jesus isn't done. Next, he's going to give the second great commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. He says in verses 39 to 40, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So here Jesus is quoting again from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, 18. And again, I want to kind of do the same thing, try to unpack this commandment so that we understand what Jesus is saying. What does it mean? And also, how do we grow in this and obey it to the fullest? So what does Jesus mean here? He says we're to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, God has made us in such a way that we love ourselves. We, we, we care for ourselves, don't we? We're, we're thinking of ourselves. We want to feed ourselves. We want to clothe ourselves. We want to comfort ourselves. We have a desire to take care of ourselves. Now, our sinful nature can distort that, right, so that we become overly preoccupied with taking care of ourselves to the detriment of others. But God has put that desire in us to love ourselves. And we're to love ourselves, or to, excuse me, to love our neighbors the same way that we love ourselves. You say, well, who then is our neighbor? Isn't that a great question? Who is our neighbor? Well, in Leviticus 19, 18, in the original context there, it was talking about the fellow Israelites, right? Or maybe some Gentiles who were dwelling among them. But then Jesus comes along and he expands who the neighbor really is. In Luke 10, Jesus is involved. It's a different conversation about loving one's neighbor, but he, he, similar ideas going on here. And he, was, and he is asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that? This man is 
going along the road, gets beaten and left for dead. A priest comes by, doesn't help him at all. A Levite comes by, doesn't help him at all. A Samaritan comes by, and the Samaritans were at odds with the Jews, but this Samaritan cares for this man, takes care of him, nurses him back to health. And so Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. So your neighbor is anyone that you come into contact with. Your family, your co-worker, your best friend, and even someone who despises you. Indeed, in Matthew 5, 43, Jesus commanded us to love our, what? Enemies. So, who is your neighbor, friend? Everyone. We are to love everyone as we love ourselves. A related question is, well, then how are we to love them? Well, the Bible makes it clear that we're to love others both with affection and action, right? It's not one or the other. It's both. So we're to have an affection for people. Now, obviously, that's going to differ depending on circumstances and things in life. We all get that. But we should have an affection for people, right, to want the best for them. And what the Bible also stresses is that love is a verb, isn't it? It's not just something we feel in our hearts, but it's going to be reflected by our actions. 1 John 3, 17 to 18 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So it's not enough just to say that we love others. It needs to be demonstrated by our actions. If there are no deeds, there's no love. So in answer to that first question, what does the commandment mean? We're to love everyone, even our enemies, the same way we love ourselves. And our love should be reflected by our actions and our affection toward them. Why is this commandment so important, you might ask? Well, do you realize this commandment, as simple as it is, it basically summarizes all of our interpersonal relations, right? If we will just love one another the way we love ourselves, everything will fall into place. Isn't it crazy? But it's true. And this was definitely captured by the early church. They got this, that this is what we need to live out. For example, Galatians 5.14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13.8-10 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If we just think about it, if you love your neighbor like you love yourself, 
Are you going to steal their things? No, right? Are you going to lie about them? No, you're not. So whatever it might be, if you love them like you love yourself, all of those commandments fall into place. You say, well, how can we obey this command to the fullest? How do we obey this command to love our neighbors ourselves to the fullest? You know what I would say? I would say we need to go back to the first commandment, to love God supremely. It always goes back to God. You see, what, 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 would, what would that have to do with it? What does God have to do with loving our neighbors ourselves? Well, when we realize and have a deep love for God and that God has made people in his image, it changes how we see people, doesn't it? There are no longer annoyances, there are longer nuisances or people getting in our way or whatever, but those people are made in the image of God. And when we also realize that God has loved us through Christ by just showering with uh, grace and forgiveness, it's going to break open our hearts to want to show that same type of mercy to others. So loving God, hear this out, gives you the desire and the ability to love others. And if we don't have a love uh, for others, it shows that we may not really love God. Ouch, right? But if this is something we're really struggling with and we don't have a love for people, maybe we need to go back to the building block of loving God. First John says this. He writes, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he... For he, who, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And that's why Jesus puts these commandments together. Loving God supremely, loving our neighbors ourselves, they're two sides of the same coin. I would also say this, pray for greater love. Pray for greater love with people in your life. You know, some passages in the New Testament kind of emphasize this and set a model for how we're to pray. 1 Thessalonians 3:11 and 12 says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. If there's someone in your life that you're having a hard time loving, I would encourage you to pray. Pray for that person. Pray for your own heart. And it's amazing as we do that how things change, don't they? You see that person differently. You might maybe see their situation a little bit more. Maybe you're not so quick to blame them. Maybe you see a greater desire where God's been patient with you. Your heart softens. Maybe you want to serve them in a greater capacity. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if that's something difficult, we need to be praying that God would give us a bigger heart to do so. Amen? Amen. Now, interestingly, Matthew's gospel doesn't record the response of the lawyer here, right? But Mark's gospel does. And the man agrees with Jesus' answer. He seems to be more sympathetic to Jesus than his colleagues. But... And as a result, I would say in Mark 12, 34, Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. 
That's a very fascinating statement, isn't it? Now, Jesus is not talking about a geographic location, right? There was not a point there in Jerusalem that was the kingdom of God if you, if you, you know, got your GPS out, and that was the exact location. It was not a geographic location, but he's talking about the condition of his heart. This man was close to the kingdom, but he had not entered it. And that's a really powerful truth because there are degrees of closeness to the kingdom. Now, on one hand, that's an encouraging thing, isn't it? To know that people can be moving in the right direction, right? They're heading in the right place. But on the other hand, close is not enough, is it? You actually have to enter the kingdom. How sad would that be to be someone who's very close to the kingdom? but who doesn't actually enter the kingdom. We should be wanting to make sure that we have entered the kingdom. It doesn't just happen. And Jesus tells us exactly how we do enter the kingdom. The very beginning of his ministry, Mark chapter 1, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, You see there, two elements. How do you enter the kingdom? Jesus says, look, first you have to repent. You have to realize that you have sinned. You've gone in the wrong direction. Your heart is driven by more of self-focus instead of God-focus. And you have fallen short of what God expects from us. We just saw the two great commandments, right? Loving God supremely. Who could say that they have loved God supremely throughout the entirety of their lives? No idols at all, huh? I think that's pretty much a blanket statement that we would all fall short of that, right? Who could say that they have loved their neighbor as themselves? Every single person that you have met in your life. Another blanket statement. So we need to repent, don't we? We need to ask God for forgiveness. We also must believe the gospel. Praise God for the good news. Amen? The good news that Jesus came to give, that He is fully God and fully man, who died to atone for our sins. Belief in the gospel is essential because our good deeds, they don't wipe away the the guilt of our our sin. God's not going to just sweep it under the rug, friend. There has to be an atoning sacrifice, and Jesus is that atoning sacrifice. He is the good news that He lived out. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. And He rose again to demonstrate that He, what He claimed to do, He really did. Who He claimed to be, He really was. And so He's saying to His audience, there And through the ages, repent and believe in the gospel. Have you entered the kingdom the way Jesus demands? Maybe you're close. Praise God for that. But let me encourage you today to enter the kingdom, to repent of your sins, and to believe in 
Christ, not based on your good works, but by repenting and turning to Christ in faith. If God is tugging on your heart today, let me encourage you to follow through. Because there's no guarantee that tomorrow you'll still be interested. Things happen in life, and someone might be kind of on their way, and then the next thing you know, something happens, and they have no interest. While God is tugging on your heart today, enter the kingdom. Enter the kingdom. Don't just be close. Enter the kingdom. And the Bible says you will be saved. Amen? Let me pray. Lord God, as we read this passage, we see that you are always at work. You are at work with this man who kind of came at Jesus to test him, but yet through this conversation, his heart was opened, and he was close to the kingdom. Lord, I pray for everyone here today that, Lord, they would know that they have entered the kingdom. And if someone might just be kind of close, that today they would take those steps to repent and believe in the gospel, to know you as Savior and Lord. And, Lord, we thank you for your word here today. Thank you for taking the, the entirety of the Bible and bringing it down to our level so that we can have this summary, these marching orders of two very clear commands that you give to your people. Lord, we want to love you supremely. God, help us, we pray, to lay aside idols in our lives. We confess that we have those things, things that matter more than you. Things that if they were taken away, our lives would be completely devastated. You are the supreme treasure of our hearts. Forgive us, Lord, for these idols. And Lord, help us to know you through your word. And to live out what we read. Lord, we want to love our neighbor as ourselves. Forgive us for not doing this, Lord, the way we should. God, Lord, we pray that you would give us a bigger heart for the people we encounter in our daily lives, whether it is our physical neighbors or someone we encounter at the grocery store. Lord, we pray for specific people in our lives that maybe it is difficult to love them. Give us bigger hearts, Lord. We think of how you, Jesus, wept over the city of Jerusalem, even though you knew what faced you as you entered that city. We pray for a heart like yours. Give us the affection and the action, Lord, to live out what you have given to your people. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for all your truth that you have given to us this morning. Help us to be a people of your word who hear and respond to the word of God. And Lord, as we do so, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us in greater ways. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.